roses turn to scat It's better because of you and that's a fact We're in this together, you and I We're in this together, you and I Hello and welcome back to You Understand When You're Younger a father and son pod where we discuss things that we scour on the internet for an hour and a half-ish. Dad, how are you doing today? Not too bad. Jordy, how about yourself? I'm doing well. Uh, Thanks to Ted Heineshevitz for the intro song, You and I, off of his album, It's Fine. We are going to talk about fantasy football today, tis the season. Um (laughs) But first, Dad, I because this is an inverted episode, yes. I I have a weekly question for you that's a bit of a thinker. Uh-oh, I'm a little worried. What advice would you give your 12-year-old self? So that's 7th grade. Oh, boy. The oh, most that's... important advice that you could give yourself as a 7th grader. Let's see here. Um, wow, there's there's a lot of obvious ones like, hey, you know, bet on the uh, the Cubs to win the the World Series in 2016. Put all your right. you can save up for that. Those are some obvious ones. Um, I guess the big the biggest thing that I would say is to make sure that whatever you do, you do with confidence, even if you're not sure about things or you have questions about what you're doing or why you're doing it, I would suggest that you do that with confidence. And that's advice I would give anybody now, whether you're 12 or not. But I would say that there's so many things that you can do in life and get yourself involved with that if you go into it and you show a lack of confidence, that is something that people uh, catch on to and you can fail at something that you did not expect to fail at. So I would say, Make sure that you go into whatever you're doing in life, whether that be school, whether that be work, whether that be sports, whether that be any type of activity, you do it with confidence. All right. That's good advice. Do you think that your seventh grade self needed that advice? I think there are certain circumstances that, yes, I, I would say that that would be the case. Um, I I played a lot of sports and I was, you know, I mean, this is seventh grade. So I was a pretty decent athlete in seventh grade. I did a lot of uh, sports, uh, basketball, baseball, I ran track. I did football, did a lot of stuff. And so I did that kind of thing with confidence, but I didn't always have confidence in the other areas of my life. Despite the fact that, you know, I think you would agree that I, I tend to project confidence now, Yes. uh, whether or not uh, it's, it's warranted or not. It is one of the things that I did I did learn over low these many years. But I think in, in seventh grade, that certainly would have helped in a lot of different areas of my life. Yeah, confidence is important. Uh, obviously, like we talk about it a lot in the context of like attraction, like people are not just romantically, but platonically attracted to somebody who is at least at the very least self-assured. You know, right. uh, nobody wants like to be with the miserable guy at the party or in the bar. Um, right. And I don't think that having a negative outlook on everything of, about life and seeing the worst and everything gets you very far in your own head, but certainly doesn't get you anywhere in uh, in society. So, yeah, it, yeah. it 
but confidence i also like i'm also find myself annoyed by overconfident incompetent people <laughs> like if you I, I agree with that if you're going to approach every situation with confidence then you at least need to have like a base level of competency which is i not an issue that you personally have but i do happen to know like not people that I work with personally now, but I like I've had many jobs in my life and I've worked with many people who are very certain of their ability, who I feel were very bad at their job. And yes. in fact, the only thing separating them from failure was that confidence. So I guess if you don't want to fail, yes. But as me as dictator of my own world in my head, I'm like, man, th like, I don't care how confident this person is. They should be, they sh I, if they can't do their job, they shouldn't have their job anyway. Well, no, in, in kind of a, uh, yin to that yang, I guess, is people who are overconfident to the point of arrogance, right? Yeah. Where, you know, they may be good at their job, but they're, they project that so over the top that you can't stand being around them either. Right. Where it's just like, okay, dude, great. We get it. You're great. You're great at everything. And you're telling everybody you're great at everything. That's, that's a, a different type of confidence. It, like I said, it, it's arrogance and, and people don't really like that either. Right. I think that confidence overspills into arrogance when you think that you're so good at something that without being asked, you provide pointers like yes. when, when you start offering advice, and that's where I think that's what I call overconfidence. When I'm working with somebody and I ask them a question and they tell me how to do something, then that's fine. But if I, you see, see me working and you come over and say you should do it this way without ever asking if I already tried it that way without asking why I'm doing what I'm doing, just assuming that you know better than me because you're that confident... And then I am sitting there with more situational knowledge. Like then you look like an idiot because you're just offering advice unrequested and that advice may be wrong. So absolutely, you can absolutely. be confident without thinking that everybody needs your help. And I think that that is, uh, that's the difference between confidence and arrogance. Maybe not, maybe there's more no, to it. Uh, no, that's, I think when it's distilled to its, uh, uh, lowest level that is exactly what it is that's something for people to understand easily yeah uh how about yourself what was the question what's advice <laughs> that i would give to my seventh uh to your 12 to your 12 year old self and maybe it's you know, have a better memory i don't yeah. know short I, have a better short-term memory see when i was 12 i felt like i had a steel trap memory but ever since yeah, i started true. repeatedly hitting my head against the wall every night before i go to bed i <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, but seventh grade at the time I would have been at just like enjoying choir, but not enjoying school at all. And feeling like I was on the outs. Like I, I think you either have the, the best experience of middle school or the worst. There's like no middle road for people. Most people yes. have like the word, like they all hate it like a select few like taylor happened to enjoy middle school but he's one of the rare who i've ever heard say anything good about it um because <laughs> it's such a turbulent time which is why i think this is a fun question yeah. but when 
you're that age, like you have, you still have a strong sense of imagination. You still have internally, whether or not you're confident at all, a strong belief that you have an understanding of who you are and where your life is going to go. Like you, I, I think that when people ask you where you want to be in 10 years or five years, like you might not be able to say what kind of job, but you will at least be able to describe your life. Right. And I think that that is what I would tell myself not to do, like to understand that you can only really accurately predict days or weeks of your life. And yeah. that when things seem bad or when things seem good, like on a macro scale, life is very cyclical yes, and uh a lot of it in in retrospect to me feels like the the luck of timing whether or not uh everything is coming your way or everything is not and obviously you can prepare yourself like uh, chance favors the prepared they say but yeah uh holding on and understanding that just because you don't understand why things are the way that they are, doesn't mean that they're going to be that way forever. It doesn't mean that, um, things won't get better or things won't get worse and that you need to understand how to live in both of those worlds and understand yes. that you can survive when things aren't good and that you can be humble when things are good. I think it's a valuable lesson that not many seventh graders learn easily Generally, they uh, learn I, it by things going terribly wrong. And I think that there's not many folks your age, uh, you know, 23, 24, 25 years old, that understand that at this point, at, the, at that age as well. There's some folks who do, but there's, I think, a vast majority of folks don't quite understand until they're uh, in their late 20s for various different reasons. I, yeah, I think that a lot of my friends post college graduation have seemed to like mature at rapid rates yep That's and I, i'm an observer at their own age so i can't fully speak to it but it just seems like you you do learn a lot even in your early 20s and i'm excited yes. to see what i learn in my late 20s as well but i mean it's 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 almost a daily thing so one of the things you just hit on right there Leads me to just kind of a little bit of a spinoff on this. So you talked about people having plans for, you know, five, what are you going to do five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road? And one of the just um, cliche job interview questions are, where do you see yourself in five years and 10 years? And that is one of my least favorite questions. So as you know, I do a lot of job interviews uh, with people and I, I hire a lot of folks and I have a totally uh, customized list of questions I have, and that question is not on there, and it will never be on there, because I think it, it, it's great to set goals. I'm someone who likes to have goals and set goals, but I think that you can really blindside yourself by saying, okay, I'm going to do this in five years, and if you're only focused on that, other opportunities that may be coming your way that may actually be better than what you had set as your goal, you can be blind to. So I would prefer people to uh, not take life one day at a time uh, per se and say, okay, well, I'm not going to plan for tomorrow. I'm just going to live for today. That's not a great plan. But I also think that uh, if you're putting all your eggs in the five-year, 10-year basket, you're, you're you're missing the boat on a lot of opportunities as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm having fun with this discussion, so I'm going to keep going with yeah, it. Yeah, that's great. 
but there was a book that I read called On Grand Strategy. I've referenced to you many times, but I'll mention on the podcast that I don't read a lot of nonfiction because I can find most of the factual information I care about on the internet and I can find most of the life advice I'm looking for on podcasts. (laughs) like this one (laughs) like this one but so i mostly prefer to read fiction and because i like getting enveloped in a fantasy world or whatever but i on brand for for today's theme i guess huh yes exactly good one dad that book which is by i can't remember if he teaches at harvard or yale but some professor of or maybe he's at the naval college something i don't know it's some smart guy. Yeah, some guy. John Lewis Gaddis uh, wrote this book analyzing all of these old, really old philosophical texts uh, about strategy. And in in his most like simple form, he he breaks it down into uh, this analogy that Isaiah Berlin, some philosopher, used. Anyway, he says this this phrase uh, that Isaiah Berlin originally said that the fox knows a great many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing. And uh, whatever that means, I don't know. But then he, <laughs> he classifies strategists as either foxes or hedgehogs, and sure. great leaders tend to possess the ability to be both a fox and a hedgehog at uh at specific times but more often than not when we're electing leaders we elect hedgehogs people who know what they want but don't know uh, all of the details but if you elect a fox into office you risk them being so focused on the details and having uh no willpower to actually get their vision into place versus if if you elect a hedgehog into the office who has one big idea the idea that that most often plays out is that they bring a a team on in the case of the United States government, we call that the cabinet to actually implement the big idea of the person who you elect as the president. But that that makes sense. The best thing to do if you want to be good at strategy is to understand when to be a hedgehog and when to be a fox. And I feel like when you're that applies not just to political office, but to your life, like you do have to have some sort of, long-term goal but if you are dominated by that long-term goal it's no good and i don't think that's just a career thing i think that's like i think a lot of people have specific ideas like about love or friendship and like what they need from those things and they're so focused monomaniacally on whatever their conception of of good friendships are what good love is that they do miss opportunities along the way like you said yeah, I totally agree with that. I, and it's one of those, you've mentioned that book a few times and you've explained this to me a couple of times and I, I really like the concept of that. And it's one of those situations where it's like, I just got to read that book. I got to put it on my long-term goal to read that book. Um, but uh, I, I, it seems like that would be something I would totally buy into. I like that approach and I, it's easy to understand. So it is one of those books that I, that I definitely need to check out. Yeah, so I, I mean, he does... What you do with that advice or that saying, like, obviously greatly depends on your ability to have critical self-awareness, you know, like, am I focused on the wrong thing right now? Am I focused on the right thing? And 
I do that through a lot of like journaling and reflection and keeping my little diary, but, uh, you can't plan your life. You can have a goal, but you need to constantly be aware of what is around you. And that's what I would like my seventh grade self to know, because at that time, I think I was more focused on the big things than the things that, that could have made my life if not better, at least different immediately at that time. Um, and and mastering that at a younger age, I think would have been very helpful. I think that, it, it, as you mentioned, middle school is a challenging time for everybody. So if you would have had that perspective in seventh grade, you would have been one of, you know, very, very few people in history to have had that perspective. Right. So, that, that that is that is that's a that would be great advice for a seventh grader. That's the other component, though, is uh, so much of the things that you need to learn in life can't be taught. Absolutely. And we can only teach the things that that tend to not be worth learning personally. You know, I agree. like you can I... teach people how to meet the measures of society, but you can't, can't really teach a person how to be a person. Correct. Yeah, I agree. They have to learn that for themselves. So that advice would probably fall on deaf ears because the kid hasn't lived long enough to know whether or not what you're telling them is the truth. And even if they did believe you, they don't have enough of a track record to understand what you're saying. So, I mean, that goes to the, this, the again, this is somewhat cliche, but when you are of that age and your parents give you advice, you don't always believe it, like you said, because you don't necessarily have the the concepts to understand it or the history to understand it. But suddenly, when you get into your age and your brother's age, your mid twenties and such, you're like, "Wow, oh, geez, my parents were a lot smarter than I thought." And right. it's 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 not because you got smarter, which is part of it, yes, but it's more about maturity in having life history yeah. and having made your own mistakes because. If you can't make your own mistakes, you're never going to learn anything. So your mom and I could have given you guys the whole roadmap to everything and say, do this, don't do this. And if you would have followed it, you'd have gotten through life just fine. However, you would have been at this point in time in your life and lost. Like, how do I make a decision? I'm not even sure how I do that. Because you didn't make the mistake to to, to learn from that. And to me, I think that's one of the concepts that, that has kind of been lost, frankly, over the last, uh, we'll call it 30-ish years, as my generation got to become more and more of a helicopter parent. We didn't let our kids make the same type of mistakes that we were allowed to make, which forced us to have to learn something. I'm not saying that we learned something well or, or better than your generation, but we, we had to learn something differently. And so you guys have had to still learn that, but you've had to learn it in a vastly different way. Uh, And it's, it's been an interesting process to see how your generation has has grown from that. Yeah, I, I think, it, I mean, there are a lot of factors that contribute to society at large, but I think the biggest result of a generation of helicopter parents is delayed maturity. Like, yes. yeah. I think about a situation that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, like how grandpa got drafted to go to Vietnam when he was 19, you know? Yes. And like, that's not a mistake, but it is a real life experience that he had to learn from immediately 
And th Absolutely. then I think about like the marshmallow world that we've been put in. And again, like I think of the alternatives, I would rather have us live the life that we live now than have a, a draft into a war. Like that's not the way that I'd like to learn the lesson. Um, but life expectancy, I don't think has increased with the amount of, uh, the increase in the years that we now call emerging adulthood. Like people are taking longer to figure things out. And in the long run, that may prove difficult. Uh, just thinking like fiscal responsibility and retirement wise, most of the people in my generation, Gen Z, are probably going to be underwater on their retirement and social security will be underwater by then. So like right. who will help them? What will we do? Like that'll be another crisis for another day that we can't predict and can't, can't seem to fix in the present, but definitely interesting to see how on a large scale, different people go through different things because of how their own perspective leads them to treat other people who have to respond to that, blah, 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 blah. blah. No, that's, that's a great point, Jordan. And it's one of those things where I look at it and, and I wonder for the folks who were very much helicopter parents, where are their kids now? The kids that are your age who had, you know, just very, very close helicopter parents. What are those kids doing? How are they handling life now compared to people who, who had very hands-off parents compared to people who had kind of that the happy medium type thing? You know, I don't know enough kids your age to be able to to speak to that. And I'm not looking for you to answer that either. But to me, it's one of those things that as, as we see the next five to 10 to 15 years, the changeover in who's running our country, the changeover in uh, uh, just kind of the age level of our country, it's going to be interesting to see what, what your, your uh, generation does, not only just in, in their life in general from a career and just handling day-to-day -day things, but also how do you parent? Do you parent going back to the hands-off approach that you know my parents had? Or do you find the happy medium? Or do you go and stay along the, the helicopter parent type of approach? And of course, that's going to be dependent on who you marry and what kind of person they are. But to me, from a generational overlook, I'm going to be curious to see what happens. Yeah, and I, I think that one issue that has maybe always existed but is very prevalent now is like inter-age group hate. Like I oh, tend yeah. to have a strong disdain for uh, the pompousness of the, the elderly, like that they think that they can do everything better just because they've been around longer and seen more. Like, I don't like that perspective. I don't think it's constructive, and yet it seems very prevalent. Yes. Um, so I'm excited to prove them wrong, <laughs> I guess. Well, it's funny because I, I had and still have that same perspective when I was your age and younger. You know, I, I understand they respect the elderly, but that doesn't mean that the elderly – know do actually know all the right things and uh, it doesn't mean that they get to disrespect you that's the part correct. that i don't like they're like oh well yes. this generation's yeah. going down the toilet i'm like if i said that about you you would say respect the elders what about respect yeah. the youth well exactly well not only that but do you do they not remember and of course they don't that that same uh language was being pointed towards them 
you know, because remember the people who are my parents' age and your grandparents' age are, you know, children of the sixties and, and, you know, some, some of them the fifties. The and, you know, that was back when, you know, smoking became a huge thing. And back when we yeah, had some shit was going down, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, a lot of drugs, the free love, all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, wait a second here. You guys, you guys knew better because, and I'm not saying that was right or wrong, but I'm just saying they, you know, they figured it out. Right. Yeah, and yet they yeah. have no faith that we'll be able to figure it out. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, and I also agree with you. I don't like the intergenerational hate aspect of things. I think it's just, it's just counterproductive to anything. Yep. Well, that was a good and wide ranging discussion. Thanks for having that with me, Dad. But yeah, we great, should probably probably get into the feature story. Yeah. All right. So the feature story I'm going to tweak just a hair. It's not just about fantasy football, but it's going to be fantasy sports, and we will we'll, we will zero in on fantasy football a bit because of where this is going to lead. But I do want to kind of give the history of fantasy sports in general. So, Jordan, would you be surprised if I were to tell you that what people consider to be the very first uh, history of fantasy sports was in the 19th century? I guess I wouldn't be surprised. I would really? have been surprised, but then you took so long answering the question that I had. Or asking, asking the question that I had time to get over my initial surprise. <laughs> so the history of fantasy sports goes back to horse roughly, racing. No, oh. actually, no. Anyway, go 18, ahead. 1866 is the earliest uh, founding of some type of a fantasy game or simulation game, and it was a game called Sebring Parlor Base Ball, not baseball, but base ball. Two words. And it was a tabletop game in which there were various different spots on the game that represented uh, either a hit for in baseball or a home run or an out or what have you. And what folks would do is they'd take like a, a coin and they would slide it on the board and whichever slot it landed in is what you got. You got a, a home run or a single or a double play or a strikeout. That was the first simulation or fantasy style game that existed. And that was, like I said, back in 1866. To me, that was interesting as I was doing some research here. So I'll get into my personal history, a little bit of, of introduction into fantasy sports, but that was the earliest one that we can, that we can find as, as far as sports go. Uh, I thought that was, that was certainly very interesting. But before we get too much further, I'm going to define what fantasy sports are. And so fantasy sports are, by, nef by definition, a type of game typically often played using the internet nowadays where participants assemble imaginary or virtual teams composed of proxies of real players of a professional sport or it could be called collegiate sport as well. But basically you pick players and you are the general manager and you get to determine who plays, who doesn't play, all that kind of stuff. So that's what a fantasy sport is. Does that make sense? Yes, it does, but I'm, I'm maybe it's not important that we go deep into it, but I'm confused by how that 
game from 1866 could be a fantasy sport because are there proxies were there proxies there it sounded more like a board game than a fantasy sport. so it, it so considered uh it that was kind of the the germination of fantasy sports because it was a simulation style game and i'll get into a little bit of what moved that forward a bit and then what de- what developed into fantasy sports as well but that was kind of the germination of what of where fantasy sports came into play so there was you weren't necessarily a proxy other than you know, you could pretend to be the Cincinnati Red Legs. And, right. you know, so that's that's kind of what the situation was there. So that was the first aspect of that. From there, in the 50s, there were, there was a game that was created which contained cards of existing Major League players that had in-game outcomes based on their previous season. So it wasn't seasons that were going on live now but previous seasons and one of those games is a game that i actually uh, used to play it's called stratomatic baseball and so what that was is that you would have a card that would say uh you know kirby pocket used to play for the twins he's a you know a hall of fame player so you'd have his stats and it would say if it, you know he had t- 25 home runs last year he had a certain average and the way you would play that game is that you would pick your lineup and put them in against someone else who picked their lineup. And then you would roll dice to determine what happened in that circumstance. So if you rolled a certain thing, it would be a home run or an out or a strikeout. So that was the next iteration of what started to become fantasy games. Because again, you're, you're using proxies, existing major league players to recreate things. Now these were all in the past, right? They weren't live you know, ongoing type stuff, but they were in the past. And that was, again, part of that germination. So one of the folks that uh, used to play that is a gentleman named Daniel Okrent. And if you know anything about fantasy sports, and by the end of this, you'll know a little bit more about it. But he was one of the folks who started and created a game called Rotisserie Baseball. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But that Sounds was the tasty. Yeah, <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's it's the uh, it's the real first iteration of fantasy baseball, if you will. But then in 1961, there was a game that was created by John Bergeson, who was at that time working at IBM, and he created something on the IBM 1620 computer, which would select a group of retired players. Again, these are historic historical records. Uh, and and play them against randomly chosen team against the computer. So basically, you were, it was a computer simulation game, and you would pick your historical team, and then the computer would randomly pick a bunch of things, and then they would play games and come up with outcomes from there. So again, we're making that next leap forward. Not only is it now something that you're maybe rolling dice on, but the computer is starting to get involved in this, and you're starting to have that proxy relationship, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's... That's a little bit of a history on the baseball aspect of things. In the 1950s, there was a uh, Oakland, California businessman. His name was Bill Winkenbach, and he developed fantasy golf. And so he what? and some buddies of his, yes, so he and some buddies of his were you know on buses and things traveling all over the place because you know air, airplane travel wasn't wasn't you know, huge, obviously, at the time in the 1950s for professional leagues, it was expensive. So they had to take buses lots of places. So right. they needed to find a way to keep themselves 
uh, occupied. And so they selected a roster of professional golfers and said, okay, I'm going to take Jack Nicholas. You're going to take, uh, you know, Chichi Rodriguez. And they would add up all of their scores and determine who had the lowest number of strokes, just like you would, you know, in a, in a golf league. And right. that is, they would go against each other with a roster of professional golfers. Think about that. That was the 1950s and they were doing fantasy golf. What a lame sport to choose. <laughs> it's, oh, it's huge. Fantasy golf is absolutely huge, my friend. It's absolutely huge, especially as, we, as we're getting uh, around the majors. When you're talking about the Masters and the U.S. Open and things like that, fantasy golf is, is very, very big. I'm sorry to hear uh, that. <laughs> well, then um, the same gentleman, Mr. Winkenbach, not only did they start doing things with our uh, the, the golf league, but they also are credited. And, and there is a little bit of gray area here as to who originally started fantasy football or didn't fancy start fantasy football. There is, you know, a thousand people who claim that they started fantasy football. And there's really no definitive answer. But I'm going to give in, in this podcast, I'm going to give the credit to Mr. Winkenbach because he he did the fantasy golf. And that is that, that is actually a factual. So he was saying that in the 60s, as they were traveling around, they decided that they were going to start something that would eventually become fantasy football. They started a league called the Greater Oakland Professional Pigskin Prognosticators League or GAPPOL. And what they did is they uh, went ahead and started, quote unquote, drafting players uh, from various different uh, uh, NFL teams and tracking their stats and trying to go up against various different other players in this Goppel League to determine who had the best, uh, you know, the best team. And so that was one of the original fantasy football leagues. And then there's another gentleman who was part of that. His name is Andy Musalimus, and he owned a bar in Oakland called the King's X. And that bar hosted the first public fantasy football league in 1969. And so they would have their patrons come in and each week they would draft players and follow what their stats were and play against each other. So think about that. That's 1969, you know, is, is a long time ago at this point. Oh yeah. God, I'd kill myself if I was born in 1969. (laughs) Thank God I wasn't. So anyway, um, uh, that is really in general when it was, when it was started again, there's a lot of different stories about things, but, but we're going to give those folks credit for, for the purpose of this podcast. And then in the 1980s, is when Rotisserie League Baseball started. And like I mentioned, there's a gentleman named Daniel Okrent, who is the person who started Rotisserie Baseball. Now, the way that worked is that you would draft active Major League players. So these are active players. These are not in the past anymore. Now we're looking at people and what they're doing right now. So you would draft a player, and he would be on your team, and you would just track their stats for the whole season. And it was basically who had the most home runs, who had the lowest ERA, who had the most hits, all the various different categories that existed in baseball for your team against someone who drafted other people from another team. And you would compare and contrast and see who had the the best stats overall. And rotisserie league baseball got huge. I remember it in the eighties. I remember playing it in the eighties and uh, it was, it was huge. I remember a book that was written 
by Daniel Okrent. And I read the book. I was like, wow, this seems like really a cool thing. You know, as a huge baseball guy, still love baseball. I know a lot of people hate it, but I really do like baseball. Part of it is because of the statistics. I'm a big fan of those types of stats. And so this is the gentleman who started rotisserie league baseball, which then morphed into various different other things. So what I'm going to flip into at this moment is a little bit of my history and exposure to fantasy sports. So I just mentioned that I heard about and knew a little bit about rotisserie league baseball in the early 80s. So let's call it 83, 84 ish uh, is when I heard about it and, 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 and read about it a bit. But then around that same time, getting back to, oh, seventh grade, which is what we were talking about and what advice I would give my seventh grade person, it would have been to create and invent fantasy football, really, <laughs> is <what it laughs> my best. Well, my best, and you'll understand why in a little while. Uh, but uh, in seventh grade, I, I vividly remember fantasy football. And the reason why I remember that is that we were sitting in a science class and we had a couple of science teachers while we were doing an experiment. They were standing up in the front of the room talking about various different things. And we were working on our experience and experiments. And of course, like I mentioned several times, you know, I, I played sports growing up. And so our science teachers were also coaches. So they either coach football or baseball or basketball or what have you. Didn't really matter. So, you know, we got to be kind of friendly with them. Well, they were talking about, oh, how about, you know, so-and-so and that guy. And he, man, I wish he would have thrown another touchdown and this guy would have caught a touchdown. We're like, we said, so what are you guys talking about? Oh, we're playing this thing. It's like fantasy football is what it's called. And one of our, one of the, the teachers told about it, told us about it over the, the summer and we drafted team just, you know, just before the season started. And it's, it's really cool, man. You draft your players, you get to pick who starts. And you're playing against, you know, Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones each week. And, you know, at the end of the season, you're playing for a trophy. We all throw 10 bucks in. So you get not only get a trophy, but we all get, you know, money out of it, you know, and, and we go through and, and have a lot of fun with that. And we, I thought, wow, that is really cool. You know, not only do you get to, you know, continue to watch the sports that you enjoy, but you also get to understand more and more about the players. One of the things that I used to be able to do, cannot do it anymore but I used to be able to name probably every single baseball player in major league baseball, every single foot, you know, football player in major league football, excuse me, in the NFL. And same thing with basketball used to be, used to be able to name them all because this is the kind of thing that I would do is follow the stats and read the box scores. So that was my first exposure to fantasy football. What came out of that was that some friends of mine and I said, well, if you can do that for football, why don't we do that for basketball? So we, and we did not invent this. Somebody else had been doing this, of course, but we created our own fantasy NBA league. And so we started drafting NBA players in 1985, 86, 87 is when our league was going on while we were in high school. And it was, it was a blast because you'd get together and you would do the draft and then we would get together and, and, you know, you know, uh, talk smack about, you know, Hey, here's how my team's doing. How here's how your team's doing because the NBA season was during school. And so you were able to talk smack throughout that whole season. And we had a great time. with Right. It. But yeah, the challenge with it though, as you can imagine, is that it is all manual, right? Everything you were doing, you had to, we, we actually had created our own little score sheets. Um, I wish I could, I tried to find one. I, I could not find one uh, for this, but, but we had created our own little score sheets. It had a grid on it, had all of your players' names on it, had a logo. Everybody on in our league created their own logo for their team. Uh, we all created, of course, your name for your team. And, and then we, you did your stats. And so what would happen was that you would track your stats for the week and then you would submit your stats to the commissioner and he would compile those and then say, okay, this team, 
beat this team this week. And then you'd go about going, going through that through the whole week. So that was my, my other exposure to fantasy sports was fantasy basketball. So I'm going to stop and see if you uh, have any comments or questions based on my soliloquy there. Uh, no, I think you're doing a good job. I don't need to be involved on this. I'm just kicking back and relaxing. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Just want to make sure. So then, uh, after people started to really kind of get into this in the eighties, I mean, fancy, I remember there being fancy, uh, basketball and fancy football leagues just popping up everywhere. And you, you know, anytime you'd go someplace, you'd hear someone talking about it. And that was, that was pretty, pretty crazy how fast it grew. Uh, however, there was everything, like I said, was so super manual and there, there, while people were enjoying playing it, there's, there's, wasn't a great way to make money on it. People were just doing it just to have right. fun. Right. Yeah. But what ended up happening in the nineties is that there's a gentleman and he's from Minnesota. His name is Paul Charchian. And he grew up just like I did in the twin cities. And he is roughly my same age, and he was in middle school in the, in, in the 80s. And he came up with the idea that wouldn't it be cool if I could make a business out of giving people advice about their fantasy teams? And he did that. He created a company uh, that he ended up selling in, I want to say he sold it in the early 2000s for about $12 million dollars. He created a company called fanball.com. And what he did there was he was someone who gave fantasy advice to people. So if you wanted to understand who you should start this week or who you should sit down this week or who you should draft, he was that person who was doing that. But before, you know, the internet became huge, he also was writing for Fantasy News Weekly. And so there was, there was every single week there would be uh, this paper that came out that told you who you should start this week or who you should um, trade for and what their worth should be. And that is what he started. And so, like I said, he was, he was from Minnesota. He's from uh, Eden Prairie originally ended up moving to Plymouth. And as, as that piece of things grew, there was lots of other folks who were competing for that, but his was really the, the germination again of, of things. And one of the big first ones that, that were on that. Was he giving advice based off of statistical analysis or just like by reading the news? Like, for example, when I need help with my work fantasy league, I go to Taylor and I ask him, hi, I have this wide receiver who's projected to do this number of points and a wide receiver who's projected to do two points less than him. I should play the one with more uh, with a higher projection, right? And he goes, actually, I would play the guy who has less because they're playing Tampa Bay this week, and this guy's injured on Tampa Bay, so this guy's likely to see more action, even though the computer doesn't project it as much. And every that, time he's told me that, he's right. So that's exactly what Paul Charchin did. That's exactly what he would do. He would take all the he. What he did was he would look at all of the things that happened last week. And all the news that he could call, because remember, there was no Twitter, <laughs> there was no Instagram, there was right. no social media. So he had to try and find wire reports, and he would call people from from the various different uh, sports leagues. And, and hey, what do you know about John Smith? You know, his Dan Marino's, you know, arm hurting this week, or so and so. So he would come in all from a from statistical analysis aspect, but also looking at at the 
the injury yeah like, analytical yeah i think yes. that's that's so impressive because uh, statistical analysis is statistical analysis you can use past performance to predict future performance and like that's fine computers do that but what's more impressive to me is when someone can just collect a bunch of facts and accurately synthesize an outcome from that like and it's incredible that's such a great skill to have that can be applied to so many things Absolutely. And obviously it served him well. So he, so growing up in the Twin Cities, anybody who's listening to this that is in the Twin Cities knows who Paul Charchin is for multitudes of reasons. One Except of them for me, because, of course. <laughs> well, you're not living there right now. But uh, anyway, he, because he was super prominent because he started being on the radio every week on KFAN, which is, a, which was one of the sports stations and still is a sports station in the Twin Cities. They had fantasy football weekly and he would be the guy and you'd call in and that was like an hour long show. And they'd have 50, you know, 50 different people calling in saying, okay, I've got John Smith on, on uh, the Vikings and they're playing the green Bay Packers this week. Uh, who should I start? And he would give that exact same answer that you just gave. Well, the Packers cornerback is, you know, he's injured this week and so he's going to be, have to be the guy who's going to have to cover him. Not only that, but because this guy from the Vikings tweaked his hamstring, this guy is going to get more balls thrown to him. So you should start that guy over that guy. And that's exactly what this guy did. And so, I, you know, I'm giving him a ton of credit. But it just happens to be that he's from, you know, where I grew up and I know him. There was a lot of people who were doing this, but he was one of the most successful folks at this because of, of, of what he did. So like I said, he created fanball.com. And, and one of the things that he he did that was really cool other than that fancy advice, but with fanball.com, he was one of the early folks to have a website that allowed you to put all your information in there and it managed your league for you. So instead of you having to put together all of the spreadsheets and calculate all that stuff and send it in to uh, the commissioner or for the commissioner to call all that information, this site did that for you. And that was huge. You you plop in your your draft, and it would you know, accumulate all the stores the scores for you and tell you who won. And you could see that stuff live. And so what was fun about that was that this was in the late '90s and early 2000s when all the stuff became big. And that was back before virtual machines existed, right? So so you know you have a server, so it was a physical server that had to handle all of this data. And when you and when you tax a system, uh, you know, whether it's your car or your refrigerator or your air conditioner or your computer with a bunch of a bunch of stuff that comes into it, it can overload. And so what they had to figure out how to do was to bring extra computers online during each Sunday so that those stats could be run. Now with, with virtual sites, it's not a big deal. And with all the high level computing we have, that's, that's so cheap. It's not a big deal, but I can vividly remember in the late nineties and two thousands when I was playing fantasy football, uh, when you would use certain sites, their site would go down every single Sunday during the games. And you'd be so mad. Cause you're like, oh, I, need, right. you know, I need Herschel Walker to score. And I don't even know what happened with this. It right. was, it was kind of crazy. So, so that gives a little bit of a history on the fantasy football. I'm going to spin a little bit more and, and talk about a couple other sports real quick. And we'll come back to fantasy football. So uh, fancy hockey. So that's again, you know, people have been doing that for a long time, but the first time that ESPN uh, uh, started stuff was in 1995 and they did fancy baseball. But later that year, Molson breweries. So Hell yeah. Molson Coors Miller. Yes. 
So they had a uh, company's marketing campaign that was um, I am online uh, centered around its I am Canadian advertising campaign. So very jingoistic, I guess, uh, there. And it was focused on music. So they would tell you about, I guess, Canadian music and Canadian entertainment. So there wasn't very much to go on there. Uh, maybe Brian but, Adams. Um, and that's, a, that's about it. Um, but it also started a fantasy hockey competition. And so you would go in and register and participate in uh, leagues of nine teams. And they would automatically present the statistics for you um, uh, as part of that. So that's when the fantasy hockey aspect of things occurred. And then it, again, I've, I've, I've mentioned Fanball and I've mentioned Paul Churchin, but there's a couple other folks. So CBS Sports started their fantasy football leagues online in 1997 and a fantasy news website called Rotowire was launched in 1997. Now Rotowire is huge, 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 and was huge. And that was when people started charging. So like I said, there was, there was, uh, you know, you know, Paul Churchin, he sold his company for around $12 million. Well, he, you don't do that by having a free site. So he would charge, you know, X amount of money for it to manage your league. And so once there became a ton of different competitors, then CBS switched their commissioner services to free so that they tried to get all of the folks uh, to, to move over to their service. And so you can tell there's a lot of different competition. And so fantasy sports, you know, people started to see that there's a lot of money in this. So one of the things that also was occurring was, you know, obviously we have the U.S. government that likes to get its fingers into everything. And so this happens a little bit further down the line, and I'll talk about that. But there's some folks who started wondering what, you know, whether or not fantasy sports were legal or not legal. And that specter kind of was hovering over them for a long period of time because online poker became, you know, something that was illegal because it was seen as gambling. And there was this specter of fantasy sports. And is that legal or not? And that, that hovered over things for a period of time. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But in the meantime, because they, there were all of these various different leagues and sports coming up, there was, believe it or not, Jordan, a, a trade association called the Fantasy Sports Trade Association that was formed in 1998. And now they've changed the name to Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association um, because of kind of some of the other things that are happening there. But right. they, someone had the forethought to start that trade association so that all of these various different startups and different companies had one place to go to try to understand how they could, you know, frankly, make more money. If, of course. If, if, Always. Because... Of course, at that point in time, in 2003, they estimated there were roughly 15.2 million fantasy sports players in the United States and Canada. And that was in 2003. Now that's about 70 million or what people are. And this is just the U.S. and Canada. We're not talking right. worldwide. We're just, you know, so so that's it. You can see how much that's absolutely grown. Yeah, well, if they they finally got me this year, I'm doing it for the first time. So if I if I can fall for it, anybody can fall for it. Well, I absolutely want to talk about that, uh, but we'll get into one other little snippet, and then we'll get into some other uh, some other stories around that. So one of the things that's missing here is something called daily fantasy sports. And so if you have watched any sport over the last ten years, 
you've probably seen two names pop up either in TV ads, especially at the beginning of the NFL season or on, you know, various different uh, sandwich boards, if you will, or advertising boards at, at NBA games, NHL, Major League Baseball. Have you seen either DraftKings? Yes. Or, or FanDuel? Yes. Yes. And those guys are the folks who are given credit for basically starting daily fantasy sports. So the folks who started those were, were people, one group, the DraftKings folks, were people who were working in a very in a in a different corporate entity and they all really loved sports and they were trying to figure out a way that they could get out of what they were doing and make sports a living. And so they came up with the the idea they thought in their head that they were the original folks who came up with daily fantasy sports. Like, hey, how can I compete against you on a daily basis? So like I want to set up you know, for baseball, I'm going to have these five guys versus your four five guys. And not only did they want to do that with their friends, but they wanted to do it with people around the world. They started looking at, okay, well, let's look at what they're doing with poker online. We can do that same type of thing with fantasy sports. And so there's some folks who started DraftKings and they are Jordan based in Boston, Massachusetts. They were founded in 2012. Prior to DraftKings is FanDuel. And they've got a totally different type of, of uh, infancy. They were founded by uh, five folks in Edinburgh, Scotland. And they couldn't give a whip about sports. They didn't care anything about sports at all. Didn't know anything about sports. Didn't care about sports. Nothing. They had started a website called HubDub. And it was a news prediction website where you would put money in and have a chance to win if you predicted what the news was going to be tomorrow. Or, now, you know, very, very Nostradamus. Of that I would sign up for in a heartbeat. That sounds fun. Well, nobody signed up for it and it was a flop. And so they, I mean, people did, but it was, it was a flop. And so they said, well, what if we started doing this with sports? And they, in, 2000, um, in 2009, started FanDuel. And like I said, it was five folks over in the UK, didn't care about anything, but they knew that fantasy sports were huge and how could we take advantage of it. So they were really focused on the, on the NFL only and fantasy football only. And so they wanted to be able to have a league that would, would go daily meaning like every Sunday, right? So that's not the definition of daily, but they weren't focused on, on the NBA. They weren't focused on baseball or, or hockey. They were focused on football because they knew that was the biggest sport in the United States. And so they were able to get a venture capital company to put $1.2 million into this, into this venture for them. And they ended up running leagues that would that would run through the NFL season, but also they ended up having tournaments that people would would get into. Okay, and there was another company, and they are called Draft Street. Now I'm guessing you probably have never heard of them. I have not because they started in 2007, 2008 ish, and this guy he thought he was the first guy to come up with this idea as well, just like everybody did. And they ended up being purchased by DraftKings down the line. But Draft Street was really the big competitor for FanDuel for many, many years, or many, many years, meaning three or four, until DraftKings came on the, on the scene. 
And so DraftKings and FanDuel obviously still exist, and they are huge. And what they both flipped into were daily fantasy. So like I said, initially FanDuel was not interested in the in the day-to-day type of stuff. In fact, they were talking to some folks in the United States about, hey, how can we do things differently? What can we do? And they said, well, what do you guys do between, uh, you know, December and um, August? And they're like, well, I don't know. We just kind of get prepared for the next season. They're like, why aren't you doing stuff with baseball? Why aren't you doing stuff with football? Well, why would we do that? Well, if you're in this to make money, that's where the money is. And so they started doing all of those things. And the DraftKings and FanDuel were the two big players. And they still are the biggest players. There's lots and lots of other of companies that do this, but these guys are the biggest. And they actually, in the mid-2000s, were being sued by the Massachusetts Attorney General's office because people were wondering if this was gambling because online gambling was not legal, right? And so they started getting into a lawsuit with the government about whether or not this was gambling. And the thing that precipitated that was there was a young man, uh, his name was Ethan, and I think uh, Ethan Haskemp or something very similar to that. He worked at DraftKings and he won a huge tournament that FanDuel was running. Now, one of the different That's rules, funny. yes, one of the rules that existed is that if you worked at DraftKings, you couldn't play in the DraftKings tournaments or you couldn't play in any leagues there, right? But right. all the people who worked there were huge, you know, fans of fantasy. So you could join FanDuel or you could join one of the other leagues that was out there. That so makes he, sense. Yeah. So he entered this, this, um, this tournament and he ended up winning it. The, which in itself is funny, but that's not what got the gambling aspect. What happened was he had put, posted on a bulletin board that like five people were reading that he had made an error and he had released uh, some information about uh, a bunch of other people's predictions. So like if, if I put in my prediction for that day and you put in yours and Taylor put in his and, and all of us put our stuff in, he released all of our information out there to the world so that we could all see what each other was playing. And, and that was, and people looked at that and said, wait, if you give that kind of information, I can see who Taylor's playing. So I'm going to change my guy to this guy. And I know who Jordan's playing. So I'm going to change my guy to that guy. And so that was considered to be insider trading that he had released. And so they, that propped up a bunch of different lawsuits against them for insider trading, number one, but then number two, whether or not this was gambling. And this became a huge, huge story, like I said, in like 2015, 2016, because of this. Turns out that Ethan, he inadvertently had released this information and he had released it after all of the information was locked. And so what I mean by that is once you put in your lineup and I put in my lineup and at a certain point in time, obviously gets locked. And you know that because you, you can't change your stuff once the game starts. He had inadvertently released that information after all of the games were locked. And so it, it, it benefited nobody, but that's not what the headline was. The headline was insider trading leads to Ethan winning, you know, $200,000 uh, contest at, at FanDuel. And so it became a huge, like I said, a, a big controversy. And it turns out that, uh, they ended up being able to defeat the U.S. government, and they are not a, ga- a gambling because 
they argued that it took skill to win their daily fantasy lineups. And it gets to exactly what you were talking about with what I was talking about, what Taylor was talks to you about and what Paul Charchian did. And those are the examples they use. You and I could just pick five guys and hope that they win. But these guys had to go and do a bunch of research as to what was happening and what the trends are. And, and uh, it, it took skill to put this stuff into play and it wasn't just gambling. So they ended up being able to win that lawsuit. And now both FanDuel and DraftKings are ubiquitous, obviously, and they're all over the place. And they have moved not only from being daily fantasy sports, uh, daily fantasy football and sports, but they also now both own sports betting in the United States because sports betting became uh, mostly legal in the United States. There's only a, a handful of states that don't have it, but in 2018, 2019, it became mostly legal. And so they got into sports betting. So just to kind of give you how big of, of a, a venture this is, and uh, we talked about Paul Charchin selling his for about $12 million in 2003. Uh, DraftKings worth is $4.1 billion, with a B, dollars. And FanDuel um, is roughly the same. FanDuel is still privately owned. DraftKings is a publicly traded company now based on who they've, they, they were purchased by. Sure. But those are still huge companies. So when you start thinking about the kind of money that's in fantasy sports. Start, and, and it's all started back in the you know, 1866 with a guy in, in a coin on his, on his thing there. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy how you can so, make money off of almost anything. So I try. have an example. Exactly. So I have an example of, of a couple of things, and then I'm going to ask you about your fantasy stuff. So I, in preparation for this, asked one of my friends uh, if he played FanDuel or DraftKings ever, because I don't play fantasy uh, sports on a daily basis, but I wanted to know some information from someone who had. And so I asked, have you played either of those? And he said, yes. And I said, which one? And he said, FanDuel. And I said, why? He said, back when he started in 2013, that had a much more user-friendly interface. And that's the one he stuck with because he didn't want to get into two different things. And he didn't really feel like this was something he was going to make a living off, which there are people who this is their life. They make hundreds and hundreds and millions of dollars, hundreds and hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars each year doing this, um, just like people playing poker. Um, and then I asked him, well, why do you even play sports, uh, play uh, fantasy sports? And he said, basically, it's for a few different reasons. One, because he started playing um, this with his friends in high school, and it's one way to keep in line with them. He said another thing is he likes competition. And the third thing is, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, of money involved, not a ton of money, uh, but there's a little bit of money involved, so it's, it's fun to win that. But he, and I thought this was humorous, he um, won first place out of 14,200 people on a $1 bet for... Fantasy golf, Jordan. Oh, man. So he took first place in a fantasy golf tournament. Um, and he said it was the, bi the biggest rush of his life uh, on stuff like that because it came down to a putt on Sunday. So he was sitting there watching uh, the tournament on Sunday. And if the guy made the putt, he finished in first place. If the guy didn't make the putt, he finished in sixth and he got no money out of it. And so the guy makes the putt and he won a thousand bucks. It's crazy to think that some people do win those like those things. And that is gambling because you can 
guess how like it that's like playing blackjack like you can calculate the odds but you can't guess the hand unless you're actually counting the cards you know so it's interesting because you know that was the argument the government made was that this was absolutely gambling no question about it whereas like i said the other folks are saying well you know there might be some gambling but i had to know what this guy had for breakfast so that i knew whether he's gonna make that putt or not and so that's where they came into the, the alignment of skill yeah i uh it's a shaky argument, but I can see why a jury would be stupid enough to agree with them. And I'm also, I don't think that gambling should be as regulated as it is anyway. So, well, and it's lightened up a lot, obviously, like I said, since the, the ruling, right. uh, you know, like it's, it's huge here in Arizona, uh, which I think somewhere down the line, we'll probably have to have a podcast about sports gambling outside of fantasy. So that'll, that'll be a good thing for us to have somewhere. Um, so Jordan, you mentioned this, so this is your first year in fantasy. And so you and I actually have not talked about this uh, and it, because I knew that this was going to be a topic here. So I wanted to ask you, number one, uh, how are you enjoying it? Are you enjoying it? And uh, how are your teams doing? So I had wanted to like get into it because I figured it would be a useful skill to have now that I'm in a, a skill or, or a gamble a useful skill to be able to participate in, not do well at, but a skill oh, gotcha. that I would gotcha. know how to do it in the event that I was asked to do it in a work league, which sure. I would have steadfastly avoided in the past right. for fear of embarrassment. But I, the best way to avoid being embarrassed is to become competent at everything. Yes. Um, so we tried it and I am in a work league and I'm in this, this one that we have with you, me and Taylor and some of my buddies. Yep. That one I'm not doing so well in. I picked that all for myself, but yep. the work league Taylor helped me do all of my picks. And that one yes. I, I am, I am undefeated in. Well done. So, so I'm so five how, and oh. Are you, <laughs> are you the, enjoying it? I've had to make hardly any adjustments. Uh, no, I don't care. At the beginning, it was <laughs> at the beginning it was fun, sure. and I also like was surprised to learn how easy it was because of the computer projections, which are not always right, but right. good good enough, you know. Yep. Uh, I thought I'd have to do a lot more research, watch more football games. I've watched zero football games this season, <laughs> beside one preseason Patriots game that you and I both attended. Yep. And obviously that had no bearing on fantasy. Uh, I don't really have any plans to watch a football game this season. And I just go on on Thursdays if I remember to and see if I can increase the overall projected score of my team. It's very so, easy. So, so for you, you're, you're, for the people who are, you know, hardcore fantasy folks, not the professionals, but the, you know, the, Casual hardcore folks, if there is such a thing. The enthusiasts, the yes. Yes, you're the one, the person they hate, the person who doesn't change their lineup and you just keep winning. Uh, and you don't watch football and you don't care about it. You're the yeah, hate. there was one uh, week three, I was going up against probably the most impassioned. He doesn't work with me, but he's a friend of a person that I work for. And he was like sure. trash talking in the group chat for everybody who's in that league about how he's just going to like wipe the floor with everybody. It's not even close. He's going to do so well. And he had won his first couple games, and he's like, yeah, I love my lineup, only poised to do better. Well, we were matched up the third week, 
and he was like, oh, like, I don't know who this guy is. Because, again, we've never met, don't really know each other, don't even have his number in my phone, don't know his name. But he's like, but he's going to eat shit. I he then texted after like on Tuesday morning after all the Monday night games were done. Right. How did I score second highest in the league and still not win my matchup? (laughs) And so I was like, oh, shit, I opened the app. Uh, It's on ESPN Fantasy and he got 147 points and I got 151 and I didn't touch my lineup at all from what Taylor gave me. (laughs) And it was so funny. So I responded in the group chat. I was like, because you didn't score the most points and win your matchup. Oh, man. Um, was not happy with that. Yeah, he didn't reply, but I thought it was funny if he was going to complain about it. So it is... It, I mean, it's there's, it, it's not luck. Taylor helped make a great yeah. team based off of knowledge that he had that also aligned somewhat with the computer projections. And I'm sure I won't be undefeated forever because of the passive role I play in it, but it's just been kind of fun yeah. to dominate without any effort on my, ha- on my yeah, behalf. Yeah, like I said... People, people will hate you for that, but that's okay. okay. They don't have to know that I'm not into sports and I don't tell them that. So for all they know, I do care deeply and I just believe in the individuals that I have on my team. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're just a good coach. That's what it comes down to. Exactly. Uh, How about you, dad? How's your season going? Uh, Well, I'm only in the one league and I'm in the league with you. And so... If you think that I know the standings in that league and would be able to reference them, you are mistaken. I know that you can't reference those, but I am in first place in my division. I just lost my first game uh, this past weekend, and I knew I was going to. But the the funny thing is the person that I lost to, um, uh, I've never met Mitch, but I believe you've met Mitch and you know uh, her and obviously, you know, uh, she's a, a good friend of Taylor and, and Annalise's and uh, that's who I played. And she's uh, wiped the floor with me. I think she got like 180 points this week and I did not. Um, it, looking at what the matchup was, I knew that I was going to get smoked. But uh, other than that, that was my first loss for the season. So um, I, I'm kind of like you, Jordan. I do look at it. I don't do a bunch of messing around with stuff. I do make some changes on a weekly basis because I want to, you know, I do want to try to uh, do the best I can, but you know, this league last year happened to win it. And that was just, that was fun. That was the first, I hadn't played fantasy sports for 20 years uh, at all, not even one, one time for 20 years before last year. And so it was fun to do. I'm enjoying it. Uh, It's one of those things where it does get me to watch the games a little bit more because I do watch my players or watch somebody else's players. You know, I enjoy football anyway. So for me, it's, it's been a good thing, but I can certainly see where if you're not into it, you know, just having a team out there and letting it roll is right. Is, is good. Yeah. So, so if you're, actually, if you're a nerd out there and you think that fantasy football isn't nerdy, so you can't do it, it is nerdy. It's just math and statistics and you can be a passive, like you do not have to be a football fan to participate. Right. Which I was surprised to learn. So did you learn anything on this uh, on this week there, Jordy? Uh, I learned a lot about the history of uh, awesome. of fantasy sports. You did a good job. Awesome. Well, it that's was all a whirlwind. <laughs> it was. It's a lot of things.